Today's scripture reading is from James chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. You can follow me in your few Bibles, page 854. My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? For example, suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and another comes in who is poor and in dressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, you can stand over there, or you can sit there on the floor. Well, doesn't this show discrimination in your judgments, and your judgments are guided by evil motives? Listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he has promised to those who love him? But you dishonor the poor. Isn't it the rich who oppress you and drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear? Yes, indeed. It is good when you obey the royal laws found in the scriptures. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you favor some people over others, you are committing a sin. You are guilty of breaking the law. Here at the reading. This is the word of the Lord. Maybe it's because I'm close to 6'4", that I often feel discriminated against and felt the sting of favoritism against me on an airplane. <laughs> Those people in first class, you know, served, served gourmet food on China and Crystal... And I'm sitting in coach, and I get a little plastic packet of peanuts, maybe graham crackers. And, and in first class, there's, look at that, look at that room to, to stretch and everything. And especially on a plane, Bobby Austin to South Africa or the like, and I'm in coach, and I swear it's like I'm returning to my mother's womb It's even more troubling picture. Go to that. Yeah, that I just, <laughs> you know the feeling, don't you? And there's always a curtain separating those two compartments, right? And it's like the Berlin Wall or the Holy of Holies in the temple, you know, and you do not breach that curtain no matter what. Even if there's one person in first class, you do not go there. And you feel excluded, and, and, and you're the outsider. But isn't it great when you get the VIP treatment? Let's say it just happens that you befriend someone who's a member of your favorite band since you were 13 years old, and it is the greatest band in the history of American music. And they have taken Chicago blues and Delta blues and galvanized them into this wonderful form of classic rock. And, and, and you go up, not, not to uh, uh, the main ticket window, and you don't go to the will call window, you go to the band window. You remember this, don't you, Brian? You go to the band window, right? Tuck, wherever Tuck is. There you go. And you go to the band window, and they give you a sticker like this to put, put right there, a colorful sticker. And then you go in this back way, 
And it says backstage, you know, and you go up and down stairs and around pillars and, and, and past all these checkpoints. And then it says backstage entrance, keep out. But then you show that, and it's open sesame. Ah. And you feel like a VIP. And, and, and even better, I'll, I'll be honest, the best place where I've experienced VIP, and I was the one getting to offer the VIP effect to people was, and I know I've been talking about it lately, but it was on the App Trail mission trip. Is Dave Thomas here by any chance? Is Dave here? God bless him, wherever he is. Just, you know, he's lapsing, so pray for him. Um, but one of the cool things that we did that was set up was uh, sometimes some of us were stationed at the, well, it's the exit out of the woods from the Appalachian Trail. And let me tell you, there have been people that have been hiking literally for 400, 500 miles, and now they're getting into this town. Again, the app trail goes right through Damascus, Virginia. So they're exiting the woods, but you're kind of their, their welcome mat right there. And you've got a little tent there. You've got chilled bottled water for them. You've got little goodies for them. You have a map for them. You show them where the food is, where the equipment is they can buy, where they can get medical treatment by Jim Asobi and, and Belinda Thomas and, uh, and other folks, uh, Deb Cornegay, who were over there just doing incredible work. And they're just so grateful. But let me tell you when they really knew they were VIPs. Do y'all know what these little vias are? These little packets? That, yeah, and I'm not doing a pitch for Starbucks, but it was Starbucks because it's Dave Thomas. And, and it's these little packets that you open up and you pour into, and Dave was clear to tell me, nine ounces of hot water. <laughs> no more, no less. You know, Dave. And uh, you pour it in there, and it's like instant coffee. And, it, and it's like brewed coffee. Well, I didn't know this when I was first stationed there at that welcome tent when they were coming in, but those things, I mean, everybody comes in, and you hand them a few of those, and they're just like, oh, and they're like, this is like gold on the trail, or they'd say, this is money, this is money on the trail, and and they just loved it, so thank goodness uh, for Dave Thomas and that idea. They were via VIPs. And what was cool about being at the App Trail was every manner of person was there, and I talked about this recently, you know. Everybody felt included. Talk about come as you are, as we heard and sang. You know, no one held status over another person. There was no favoritism, no discrimination, no categorization of people. But let's be honest. Sometimes you and I are guilty of just that. However blatantly or however subtle, even in the church, whether it's in a high school clique or an adult clique or a way that we view someone who is different from us we've been guilty of that playing favorites and that's why James in his plain language this half-brother of Jesus makes it clear that God does not honor any form of prejudice of favoritism in fact he condemns it harshly what does the New Testament say again and again in Christ there is neither what east nor west north or south black or white Jew or Gentile male or female slave or free It goes on and on and on. Favorites are wiped away in the church of Jesus Christ. At least they should be. It's a place that brings together people of diversity into unity. Now, I want to just look very closely for a few minutes at what James has to say. And what I love about James is you don't have to analyze it much. He's just very to the point. He's a bottom-line guy. So let's divide this into three facets, because really each of these talk about critical effects of favoritism. 
In James chapter 2, he talks about the cast, God's contrast, and our crime. So let's just walk through these. First of all, the cast. James 2, 1 through 4, which reads, My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you, have, if you favor some people over others? For example, suppose someone comes into your meeting. Let me just pause there. Comes into, you know the word meeting there is synagogue. It's where you get the word synagogue. Apparently, James is writing to Jewish Christians, Christians who are meeting on the Sabbath Sunday of Christianity. They're meeting in the synagogue. So all of this takes place. This image that he uses takes place in the church specifically. Someone comes into your church dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and another comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, you can stand over there or else sit on the floor. Well, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? I love this simple word, this simple image that James uses. And we might be tempted to point at other cultures, other faiths, who, who show favoritism worse than we do. You could easily point a finger, perhaps, at, at Hinduism with its caste system, particularly in India. Philip Yancey went a number of years ago, uh, while President Obama was in office, he went over there to get with a group of Christian leaders to see what they could do to help contribute to overturning the caste system in India. And it was interesting, at the time, since Obama was president, there was an Indian scholar who looked at Philip Yancey and said, you Americans are celebrating the election of a black man after only 250 years of slavery. We are still waiting for liberation after 4,000 years of living under the caste system. And it's this horrific institutional discrimination that you probably know of. Down at the bottom here, you have the uh, Dalits, the untouchables, who are outcasts, street sweepers, latrine cleaners, and they never receive any kind of help whatsoever. They're never allowed to go to the temple to pray, the Hindu temple. Actually, because of that, they've been turning to other faiths, including Christianity, so I'm glad we have people who are reaching out to them. Just above them are the Sudra. Uh, They are also called other backward caste, the other backward caste. And what's amazing about that is they make up... half of India's 160 million people, excuse me, 600 million people. They are 160 million strong who are the untouchables. And the caste system is designed to keep each of these people in their place. The Brahmins are the favorites. Then you go on down. It's a lot like apartheid was in South Africa. It's a way to keep things in place. And if someone tries to challenge it, It elicits a strong response, often a violent one, often by Hindu nationalists in that culture, and it can get very violent, and they will oppress, and they will offer threats, and whatever it takes to keep the status quo. Well, we want to judge such structured oppression, but do we ever do the same here, maybe in a more sophisticated, more subtle way, even in our churches? Again, James is addressing the church One of my favorite expositors of the Word of God, Dr. Joel Gregory, who teaches at Truett Seminary, professor of preaching there, was speaking to a pastor search committee. This is in the late 1980s, and they were having a wonderful give and take over a really nice dinner, and they were just kind of asking each other some of the uh, 
intro kind of questions people will ask each other, and, and he asked at one point, well, do, does your church, is your church good at, at welcoming diversity? Do you welcome diversity? And he said, and this was a church with a TV ministry, okay, it was a good-sized church, and they said, and they kind of gave him a knowing nod, and, and what, what he perceived as what they thought was a sympathetic look, and they said, oh, pastor, we have that all worked out. Uh, those folks we seat out of camera range. We make sure that the camera doesn't reach them. They're always out of the picture. Always out of the picture. <laughs> what does James say? Oh, sit over there. You sit over there. Always out of the picture. And James is saying, how can you call yourself a follower of Jesus if you are discriminating in such a way, shunning people, and really, the word he uses there, saying it's a sin, he says, it is every bit as damaging with your evil motives. It says evil motives there. It's, it's the kind of evil motive you have when you want to murder someone, damage someone psychologically, when you want to abuse someone, swindle someone, whatever it might be. It's that serious. God sees it as bad and as evil. But that would never really happen here, would it? Showing favoritism, shunning others, categorizing people, dividing up into cliques. That would never happen in Mountain Brook, would it? We're, we're enlightened, aren't we? I mean, we would never do such a thing. Sure we would, and we've been guilty of it. We might not be so blatant in our shunning like the caste system does in India, but we can do that. We can smile at somebody. You know, it might not be a structured kind of discrimination. We can, we can smile at somebody, but once they turn their back, we... we we categorize them, we hold them at arm's length, create a comfortable distance from them. It's not so structured, but it can be really subtle, can it? And God says, however subtle it is, or however blatant it is, it is downright evil. You know, one of the fastest growing businesses, in a scary way, are these people who spy on you while you're on the internet, and it winds up targeting you based on the sites you visit and everything, and they get this information on you. And, and these marketers who kind of get hold of a lot of your information have this new jargon. Have you heard about this? It's a new jargon that divides people into two distinct groups. One is targets, the other is waste. <laughs> I think it would be bad enough to be a target. They use this, this new tech, technological language to call you a target, and that's bad enough because they're trying to send you things and sell you things, or else you're waste. But are we in the church contributing, however openly or subtly, to some kind of caste system where we are treating people like waste? And James is saying you've got to search your motives. Why? Well, because of, secondly, God's contrast, God's contrast. Let's look at verses 5 through 7. He says, listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom as he promised to those who love him? But you, the you is emphatic there, but you dishonor the poor. Isn't it the rich who oppress you and drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear? You know, James draws a contrast between God's attitude towards people and their attitude towards people, the people in this church to whom he writes. 
Again, he says, hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? And the answer to that, James is clearly, clearly saying, the answer to that question he's asking is yes, he did. God has a special place for the poor, just as he does for every individual. And he's saying if God doesn't discriminate on the basis of the external or the material or the temporal, why are you doing that? Isn't it interesting? Uh, uh, I, I was listening to a group of missiological scholars the other day, just people who are specialists in the area of missions, which we are so about here. It was interesting because all of them agreed that there's such validation to God's love for the poor these days. Why? Because of how the center of Christianity, as you know, and we've talked about this constantly, it has shifted to the southern hemisphere, which is rife with poverty. It's the poorest area in all the world. And yet that's where Christianity is right now. And every one of these missionaries were saying, you know, that's validation of what James says. God loves the poor in a special way. Interesting. Well, what... Regardless of that, you know, what an odious position we put ourselves in when we reject someone whom Christ has fully received. We don't let them come as they are. Now, now I mean, be clear, James is not saying God chooses a poor man because he's poor and rejects a rich man because he's rich. It doesn't have to do with poverty or wealth. Your poverty or wealth has nothing to do with it. It's the richness of your faith. He makes that very clear in this passage. Verse 6, he says, but you... Whoever these people are who are doing it, you're dishonoring the poor. Do you see that contrast? God chose that poor person. You're discriminating against him. And really the questions that follow in that passage are basically saying, you know what, you're giving preferential treatment to people who slander Christ. Again, that's just a a symptom, an outgrowth of the way you're showing favoritism, and it's so hypocritical. You've got to move beyond that. So Paul is calling us out on our subtle caste systems that sometimes you and I are guilty of. And he's wanting to magnify the contrast, the way that he sees everyone the same. And finally, James magnifies our crime, our crime. He really brings it to this, verses 8 and 9. Yes, indeed, it is good when you obey the royal law, James calls it, as found in the scriptures. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you favor some people over others, you're committing a sin, you're guilty of breaking the law. Isn't it interesting he calls it the royal law? I don't recall that being called that way any other place, but it is the royal law. I mean, it's the king of kings who decreed it. It is the king of all laws. Love your neighbor as yourself along with God, of course. Love God, love neighbor, right? And he's saying you will pay a price for your prejudice, your favoritism. You're disregarding those who are different. How sad and tragic it is not just for those whom we're rejecting, but for us, when we miscast others, when we categorize them unfairly, especially when we don't think it's a very big deal. I heard the other day that Roseanne Barr doesn't have a show anymore. Is that right? I think her show was canceled. And it all boiled down to a Twitter that she put on the Internet basically referring to an African-American woman, a prominent, respected woman, as an ape using a racist slur, basically. It reminded me of another time that very thing happened. It was back in the 1800s, though. And, and, and there was this famous court case called the Reaper case. It had to do with uh, Cyrus McCormick, who invented the Reaper, and getting a patent for that. 
and where it was this heated, heated case, and it was getting a lot of national attention. It was taking place in Chicago, and because it was in Chicago, but they wanted the very, very best of lawyers to, to get this, get this uh, case through, they hired a bunch of uh, New York City lawyers, just the rock stars in the legal system, and brought them over. And there were four key lawyers in this group. And they decided that politically it would be a smart thing to bring on somebody local just to kind of, you know, uh, help win the jury over, right? And so they asked who somebody would be good to get. They said, well, there's this one lawyer. Why don't you just get him? And they said, okay, we'll, we'll bring him on. Well, apparently he wasn't from New York City, and he was from out in the sticks, basically. Kinda real rural area, had this annoying uh, accent, Midwestern accent, and, and was disheveled, not dressed well and everything. And, and uh, the lead lawyer from New York City <laughs> was, well, his nickname was Mars, they called him, Mars is the god of what? Anybody know? God of war. And he was just this cutthroat, warlike, prosecutor, litigator. Yeah, that's one of the few pictures we know of him at that time. They called him, they called him Mars, and he was proud of that nickname, Mars. He was a, he'll, he'll get after you. He was cutthroat, right? Well, when this uh, bumpkin lawyer walked in to, uh, to these other four people and started to introduce himself, this guy just rolled his eyes. And he said, let's do away with this ape. That's what he said. And they basically rejected him like they kept him on but never had him anything to do. And, and they would never invite him for meals or for meetings about the case. In fact, they would schedule, they would tell him that here's the schedule, here's the next court date and the next court time. And he would give them they would give this guy the wrong time. So he would walk in late and, and the trial was already going on. And he looked like a fool. It was embarrassing. Well, Mars and his crew won the case. And he wondered if he would ever see that loser of an ape again. Came to be shocked later on when that guy became his boss. Anybody know who it was? Uh, Mars, his name is Edwin Stanton. He was Secretary of War during the Civil War. And this guy became his boss. That's what that guy looked like back then. What a shame it is when we miscast people, categorize them. We do pay a price. James makes that very clear. Why can't we, as we sang again a moment ago, why can't we truly just come as we are and be who we are? And it doesn't matter who we are, what we've done, what our income is, what our resume is, what we've done in the past, what was our greatest embarrassment, what was our worst failure, what was our greatest success, it doesn't matter. Come as you are into this place. I hope we can always, at Brookwood, be that kind of place. I've talked about Karl Barth many a time, uh, as you know, the Swiss theologian of the 20th century. No doubt, in my mind, he was the most influential theologian of the 20th century, uh, a giant in the field of theology. And there was a group of American Baptist theologians who were invited to go over and meet with him at his home. And they, they were just starstruck. They couldn't believe it. And so uh, they flew over there to uh, Basel. He taught at uh, Basel, University of Basel, for many years. But he had been long retired. He was advanced in age. And they couldn't believe that they were able to organize this meeting with him. So they got to his home. Uh, his wife answered. They were ushered into his study. And there sat this giant of the field with he always had a painting of John Calvin and 
uh, Wolfgang Mozart up on his, those were his rock stars, he would say. And they walked in, and there he was, and they just kind of stood around and, and, and bowed to him. And then one of the uh, Baptist theologians started basically to share his name <laughs> and started to talk about where he got his degree and where he teaches and some of the books he's written and this kind of thing. And then the next guy started doing that, basically going through their resume so they could validate that, yes, I have a right to be in here with you, Dr. Bart. And the second guy started doing that, and Dr. Bart just raised his hand and said, nine, no. And then in clear English, he said, my friends, all of that is going to be left in the ante room before we go in to the throne room. <laughs> All that's going to be left in the ante room before we go into the throne room. What's he saying? All that's not going to matter in the long run. When we enter the throne of grace and see Jesus face to face, is any of that going to really matter? I hope that we can be a throne room even now, at least a glimpse of it here, don't you? where every manner of person is welcome, has every bit of place here as you and I do. No matter what their failure, no matter what their embarrassment, no matter how they look, no matter how successful they've been, no matter what their income is, it doesn't matter. No matter what color they are, no matter what denomination they are, none of that. James just brings this down to a very simple thing. We are all one in Christ Jesus, And so we are all, all equally wounded sinners who were in need of grace and received it because of him, and therefore as full family, we can celebrate together. Can we be that throne room for whosoever to enter? Let's pray together. We come right now to your throne of grace, O God, though we don't deserve it. And we thank you that you who knows not just the outside of us, but our complicated inner inner life, where we have dark places that we don't want people to see, but they are fully, fully exposed to you, fully transparent to you. So we ask transparently right now that we would be all the more willing to fully include anyone, anyone who, as Brian said, has a strong headwind that's hitting them in their life right now and just need love and acceptance and affirmation and help. May we be that kind of church, flinging the doors open to all, just as you did for all on the cross. We pray these things in your name. Amen.